I love electric guitars. And I find the sound so intoxicating that I always put way too much. It, it's like over-salting your food or, you know, using too much ketchup or whatever. You can totally drown out the other good flavors in a mix just because you like one flavor too much. Welcome to Recording Studio Rockstars. I'm Lid Shaw, and this is the podcast created to help you become a rock star of the recording studio. Hello, rock stars. It's Lid Shaw, your host for Recording Studio Rockstars. I created this show to introduce you to real world recording professionals to hear their stories and learn from their experiences so that you can take your records to the next level and be a rock star of the studio yourself. My guest on the show today is Mr. Craig Alvin, a fantastically talented recording and mixing engineer, originally hailing from Portland, Oregon, before moving to Nashville, Tennessee. He's been making records for over 20 years and has an eclectic discography, having worked on several Grammy-nominated projects. His work spans from contemporary Christian music on the one end of the spectrum to cool pop and rock music on the other end. His credits include Amy Grant, Vanessa Carlton, Lady Antebellum, Frankie Ballard, Chase Rice, Will Hogue, The Features, Butterfly Boucher, Aaron McCarley, Hanson, and How I Became the Bomb, to name a few. I've known Craig for years as a badass magician of mixing that can take the tracks that I've recorded and make them sound like what I imagined they could sound like. He has long since mixed with a hybrid of digital and analog gear that brings the best of both worlds together to create a sound that is powerful and compelling. I'm really psyched to have Craig Alvin here with us on Recording Studio Rockstars. Craig, are you ready to rock, my friend? Let's rock. Awesome, dude. Welcome, man. Welcome. Thanks. So uh, I've done an introduction. Can you tell us more in your own words about who you are and, and how you got to be here? Yeah, yeah. I was born in Vancouver, Washington, which is right across the river from Portland, Oregon. Uh, my dad is a musician, a gospel singer. Uh, he had a band that started the year I was born and lasted, you know, until last year. Um, wow. They toured all over, uh, played with all kinds of gospel musicians all over the world. He now has a, a job where he uh, sings. He does like crooner shows for like cruise ships or banquets or whatever. Uh, he, if you go through the Portland airport and you see an old guy singing, you know, Frank Sinatra, that's probably my dad. That's cool, dude. Yeah. So did you grow up with a whole lot of, you know, just listening to gospel music and kind of old time stuff? Yeah, I listened to a lot of gospel as a kid. Um, but my parents also had uh, a lot of pop music from their era. You know, I remember a lot of Bing Crosby and Perry Como, those kinds of things. My parents liked the Osmonds. Yeah. Were they Beatles fans too? I mean, would you no, grow up with that kind no, of sound? No, my uh, I was raised in a very religious home. Uh, we had no TV, no radio. Uh, I wasn't allowed to go to movies. I was never allowed to go to a dance. So you know, but but there was a lot of music, and we were happy. Uh, so I, I don't really regret missing so those. So no things. radio, but you no. guys are listening to vinyl records or something. Yeah, we had uh, we had our own records at home, but I mean, it was my parents' music. It wasn't for me. Any, anything for me was just like a children's record. You know, I remember Sesame. <laughs> Do you Street remember records. "Free to Be Me, You and Me"? Do you remember that that album? It was, no. That was probably a little too uh, progressive. Yeah, it probably 70s. was. That's hippies, 
hippie stuff. It's definitely hippie music. <laughs> One of the tracks was called Willie Wants a Doll. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. that, that wouldn't have made it in my house. <laughs> <laughs> All right, cool. So, Craig, share with us an inspirational quote, something that will inspire listeners to want to go make records right yeah, now. Yeah, uh, I was thinking about this, and uh, earlier this week, I was working over at Starstruck Studios on the Row, and uh, someone had taken a fortune cookie, um, fortune, and had taped it to the console, and it said, you hear with your ears, but you listen with your heart. Oh, man, that's sweet. Isn't that? But it's great. I remember uh, I used to work at a studio called Supernatural Sound, and Joe Ciccarelli came in to do a record there, and I was assisting on it. And I remember looking at him and going like, what, what is he doing? You know, Because he would stop and listen and be so still and intense. And I didn't realize that, you know, like I was hearing all the things, all the, you know, I was hearing the compression, I was hearing the EQ he's putting on things, all that. But he wasn't really listening to those things. He was actually listening to what his emotions were telling him. And wow. that was how he was finding the right sound. And it took me a long time to really settle into being able to do that, to listen to how it makes me feel rather than to think about technically about what I was doing. I had forgotten that you spent all that time working with Joe Ciccarelli. So yeah, so we, we did, we did a few records together, uh, you know, and uh, I, I really learned a lot about yeah. audio engineering and production from him. So let me introduce Joe just a little bit. I know him as somebody who uh, early in his career worked with Frank Zappa, and I yes. believe he did Apostrophe, which was like one of the most important records for me growing up. And then yeah. more recently, you know, he did, um, was it Consolers of the Lonely for um, The Raconteurs? Was that his album? Yeah, uh, he worked on that. I mean, he did a lot of stuff with Jack White. So, but you yeah. were an assistant with Joe, right? And I remember now that you brought that up, that you had some awesome stories about that experience and about, yeah, tell us the story about the time when you were kind of sitting in the back of the room while he was mixing and he turned around to you and like was like, get up to the console. Oh, yeah. Uh, he was working and he, uh, he really expected all of us who were working with him and for him to be very mindful and uh, attentive of everything that was going on. We weren't allowed to like take a break. Like there, there were no smartphones, you right. know, you weren't in the back uh, of the control room, just reading a magazine when no, you were doing uh, something. What happened was that I had, uh, I'd gotten up to use the restroom, which was okay. But when I came back into the room, there was, uh, I remember it was EQ magazine was sitting on the couch where I wanted to sit. So I picked it up and I sat down and the couch was close enough that I could keep an eye on what he was doing. That was fine. But I had picked up the magazine, and just for a second, I looked at the cover and started to read the cover. And he turned around so fast, and uh, I'm not going to repeat what he said. He said, I'm not on that cover. What are you looking at it for? <laughs> <laughs> no, he was, he was so mad that I was reading a magazine. Wow. That he, and I, I think his exact words were, that, uh, were unprofessional bullshit. Wow, that's so cool that, I mean... On the one hand, you could hear that for the first time and think, whoa, that dude, you know, like, what an asshole or something. But on the other hand, you realize that he was so dedicated to making records. Yeah. And he was dedicated to you, man. He would, no, if he, he did it for if me. If he didn't give a crap about you as an assistant, he wouldn't have gone taken the time to tell you that. I, I love the fact that he, uh, he never once considered my feelings. 
<laughs> he never once considered my feelings. He could, he knew that uh, in order to be good at this, that I was going to have to be disciplined. And uh, disciplined not by him, but disciplined in my own mind, in my own practices. That if you're going to be good at doing this, you have to pay attention and you have to work hard all the time. You just can't sit on the couch and read a magazine. So what are some of the things that you have learned to develop in your own process that equal your own personal discipline and your own attentiveness to the process of making records? Oh, uh, man, lately I have started doing something because I'm working alone most of the time. That's that's kind of the unfortunate reality for most mix engineers now is that we go to a room by ourselves and work on music by ourselves. And that's really difficult. Uh, music is meant to be shared and experienced as a group. Yeah. So when you're by yourself, it's foreign, it's alien. There, there's no one to share it with. So um, I've had I'm pretty to, sure a lot of our listeners know exactly what that feels like as home studio musicians. Yeah. I mean, at times you can kind of like get into it and not realize that you're alone. But I think the hardest part of the day is uh, is starting, like getting started. And I I have developed a technique which I think proves I am going a little crazy but that really works. And that is I start a conversation with the song. Wow. So when I pull up the song, rather than, you know, going like, ah, this stupid engineer didn't know how to record a snare drum. I'll go to the song. I'll say to it, like, how's your snare drum sounding today? And it's like, ah, we we can do better than that. (laughs) And then I'll, you know, I'll, I'll listen and go, did, did they give you anything in the bridge to make this better? Like there's no energy. Why, why are you feeling so down? Why are you feeling you know? so low? Yeah. Yeah. So I'll, I know it sounds stupid, but it keeps me in a positive mindset and thinking on the thing I'm supposed to be thinking about, which is the song. And the song and I, the song should be speaking back to me, by the way. Mm-hmm. That's a necessary skill in listening. I know this sounds stupid, but once you've been sitting in the same room for eight years, mixing by yourself, you have to develop some ways to trick yourself into thinking that you're working on music with people. Yeah. Conversations with songs. Yeah. That's cool, man. I really do that. (laughs) um, Now, I know you've also had assistants in the past, interns. Uh, Is that still part of your process or has technology sort of removed them from the space you're in? You know, are they Um, doing, are you getting assistance from somebody who's dropboxing stuff to you, for example? Not really. I'm doing everything myself these days, just mainly because um, it's really tough to maintain a full like console analog studio pro tools upgrades you know all that and and make ends meet so it was purely just a financial decision that once I took on management and they you know started uh, helping me out on that side that I would kind of have to in order to make up for that, I would have to start doing everything myself. Yeah, you know. But I mean, it, it was a good trade-off. Uh, my management does an excellent job of you know scheduling and negotiating and billing and all that stuff for me, which was a huge drain on my time and energy anyway. So I was able to kind of you know pick up the slack in the studio in order to save money. Cool, man. Yeah. Well, so share with us a story for you about a time of real failure, you know, in your career or in making an important record, particularly something that 
became a learning experience in the end, you know? I think that the thing that that if I could go back and do differently would be I would not have stayed in a small market like Portland for as long as I did. Interesting. It was, uh, I, I think I, I would have chosen much earlier to just move to Nashville and interned at a studio here rather than do it there. Because even though I'm thankful for everyone out there and, you know, uh, the people who taught me and my, you know, friendships I made and all, all of that, I think I would have gotten there quicker had I come to a, a city like Nashville or, you know, L.A. or New York and interned in a big studio. Um, it just would have been a more efficient way of going about, you know, getting to where I'm at. Yeah, because you had aspirations to really do great things with your mixes, with your career, mm -hmm. and you just felt like this was the place where you could interact with people on that level that you wanted to be at? Yeah, and, you know, in one way, I kind of like the fact that when I landed in Nashville, I was already a fully developed, you know, engineer, you know, and that I could mix. Like, people were totally shocked when I showed up and I could mix. They they thought that it was the strangest thing when this guy just suddenly appeared out of nowhere. And he knew what he was and doing. And knew what he was doing. Like, how can that be? I you remember know? feeling that way when I first met you. <laughs> it's funny, but uh, I mean, so I guess maybe that was good. That worked in my favor. But honestly... I think I would have uh, I would have moved here at least four or five years sooner. Yeah. Okay. So now our listeners, rock stars, are you know listening to this from all around the world. Would you advise everybody to move to Nashville, or if there are people that maybe aren't going to be moving to the city, but yet they still want to advance their career? What, I what advice they do you have already to them? had? <laughs> <laughs> what advice do you have to somebody who maybe is in a smaller market, you know, but maybe maybe they're not going to move to Nashville, New York, and L.A., but maybe they didn't need to move their mindset towards you know out of small yeah. small time and into uh, a, a larger. Well, I, I don't know. I mean, nowadays the tools that are available now to learn how to do this and to do it well are totally different than when, when I started, when I started, you know, digital was really not a thing. Um, there, there was digital recording, but it was not commonplace. Right. And you couldn't have a studio, a full on studio of your own, like you can now in a living room. Yeah. There was, um, there was no internet. Um, Larry Crane was just starting Tape Op Magazine. I met him when issue number one came out. I met yeah, him in Powell's it. books. It was just a, a Xerox zine that was yeah. folded over and stapled. Yeah. Yeah, I still have all those. So uh, he was just kind of getting started. And so the only place you could go to learn about recording really was Mix Magazine. We had, you know, there was Mix, there was EQ, there was recording and electronic musician, and then you had uh, the British magazines too. But so now we have a whole lot more at our fingertips. Yeah, and the technology. I mean, back then when I wanted to start a studio, I had to come up with money to, uh, I actually had developed quite a collection of uh, guitars, amps, and pedals. And when I wanted to start a studio, I had to sell all that so I could afford to buy um, a two-inch 24-track and a console. Wow. So, uh, and that was my first home studio was a, a 3M M79 out of Motown and a Neotech Series 1. Wow, man. That's a serious yeah. investment back then. And, and did you yeah. have your own home to do this in? Did you do it in your no, parents' I was, house I was, or something uh, like that? Or what? Renting, I was renting a little cabin, which was uh, on the top of a mountain. 
that used to be a fire lookout cabin. And there was a uh, one car garage that was built on the property. And I just ran a snake, you know, from, awesome. from the garage <laughs> through a bedroom window into the cabin. Can we get a drawing of that and make a t-shirt out of it? Cause I like the sound of that. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it was great. Well, so now share with us a success moment for you, you know, a point along your career path where you, you know, or making a record where you were just like, holy shit, I just, I did this. I just made it. I don't know that I have one, <laughs> I think. Or just a moment where, you're, where you felt like you couldn't believe that it came together. Here's the frustrating thing about this question, and that is um, I have records that I've worked on that have won awards, that have uh, been hits in various markets, that uh, have been nominated for Grammys, and none of them are records that I really love or that I'm proud of or that I have on my demo reel. The records that I've made that I that I'm really proud of, uh, tend to go unnoticed. And the ones that I go back and listen to over and over again, like, um, like Ryan Lindsay's white paper beds is one of my favorite records I've ever worked on. Uh, Ren Anderson's, uh, heartache in a song, Aaron McCarley, uh, her record first record that I worked on. And these, these records are really, really great. You know, Oh, another one, uh, among savages. Mm-hmm. Oh, he's great. Peter. Man, Peter Barbie. Yeah. That record, I listened to it still and just go, it was, the whole thing was brilliant and I'm so proud of it. And nobody has heard it. Oh, another one, uh, Andrew Bell, Black Bear. Again, you know, uh, it's like a few people know who he is. Yeah. Well, and so Rockstars will include, as as you can imagine, I'll include links to all these in the show notes too, so that you can click right through and follow him. I know Peter Barbie, for example, Among Savages, there's an amazing black and white video um, for yeah. that, and, and I'll include all that. So you're talking about the disconnect sometimes between the music that we work on that gains recognition from other people mm-hmm. versus the music that we work on that you know, it truly resonates with your own heart and, and yeah. uh, passion for music. So talk a little bit about that. I mean, like, is that something that we should, should we forget about all that music that we like and just focus on the stuff that um, gets written up in magazines? How important is it to create records that are meaningful to you? I'm always going to go for the records that are meaningful. And, and maybe that's, maybe that's a problem. I, I do uh, some records that, you know, are, simply because I need to pay the rent. But I think you should always strive to do meaningful work. I, I think that this this brings up an interesting problem that we have right now in the music industry, though. And this, this applies to artists, uh, I think especially in Nashville, this is the case. Uh, but it applies to artists, it applies to producers, it applies to uh, mix engineers. Um, and that is, we have a listening like deficiency going on right now. People, they believe the hype machine, they believe the rumor mill, but they don't spend the time to be diligent and just go listen to everything. Which is ironic because all you have to do is open Spotify and you can listen to a larger library than any of us could ever possibly listen to in our lifetime anyway. And the other thing is that we are so quick to make a judgment and spout our opinion. I'm guilty of this too, I have to admit. But we're so quick to do it. And most of my favorite records, I didn't like on the first listen. It took me a while to understand it for it to sink in. You know, it's, I, I remember the first time I tried Thai food, I thought it just tasted like soap, you know? And then next thing I know, 
I'm like every like, week. Well, I'm like, really I just want it. I, I want Thai food. You know, I love it. Uh, but it was just, it was so foreign to me the first time I had it. I didn't understand it. And, yeah. and then after a while, uh, it just became part of my regular diet. So my experience with that, the first time I noticed that was um, Big Star number one record. Mm-hmm. A friend turned me on to it. I listened to it and I was like, I was like, why are you so excited about this music? It's sort of loose and, and sloppy or yeah. something. And then I listened again and I listened again. And now it's one of the most incredible records I've ever heard. You know, it's yes. just, it just resonates with me. Another one would maybe be the Beatles. Yeah. Growing up, I thought the Beatles was just like, I want to hold your hand. And I, yeah. you know, I kind of forgot about it. I moved to Nashville and all of a sudden I met these people that thought the Beatles were the most incredible thing. And I went back and revisited it and it took me a minute and then it, and then it clicked, you know? Yeah. So I understand what you mean. Well, so tell us about the stuff you're excited about right now. What's what's going on in your world that you're just sort of psyched to go into the studio every day? Well, I, honestly, I feel like I'm getting by with something, you know, because I still get to do this. And that's rare, you know, for a, for a guy like me, you know, who has a studio with the console and, you know, outboard and all that, I think it's just amazing that people trust me with their music. But I, I think one of the things I'm most excited about is that uh, I'm working with a production team called Analog Heart that does uh, all instrumental music, and we do it for licensing for uh, film and video. And it's refreshing. The arrangements are great. The recordings are great. We get to be creative, and uh, we don't do it for the normal music business. Like nobody on the row is involved at all. We just do it for ourselves and we put it out there and then people license it and we make money. And to me, that's a wonderful thing because we have very few rules and uh, it's just, everything doesn't have to be loud and in your face or whatever. It's, it's meant to go with picture. So it's a, it's subtle and I get to work in subtlety, which I don't often get to do. Right. So it sounds instrumental music can be sort of expressive and you don't have to deal with a vocal out front. Yeah, exactly. And it's so different mixing without that vocal because you notice everything that's going on in the soundstage. Yeah. So I imagine it's more painterly. Yeah. Yeah. You can, uh, you have way more freedom to express yourself in these mixes because there's so much going on and the arrangements are so intricate. Um, it takes a great deal of concentration. I'm still going here. It's more like doing a landscape than a portrait. <laughs> it is. Yeah, it is. All right. So um, tell us a little bit about your studio. Now, you have a console mm-hmm. and you also use Pro Tools. Can yes. you talk about the things? I mean, you don't have to necessarily get too specific, but talk about the things that you appreciate about both those and how you incorporate them all into your process. Yeah, um, I, have a, uh, I have a Harrison Series 12. And is that a new console? Is that an older one? Uh, it's it- a, it's about twenty years old. Uh, it's analog, but it's digitally controlled analog. Uh, so every parameter on the console is uh, recallable, um, and automatable. So it, it's sort of like having the uh, the Pro Tools mixer, but in analog form. So the EQ knobs can turn on their own. The, uh, the yep. faders can move up and down on their own. Yeah, everything everything can be automated on that console, including routing and stuff that you, you could never dream of doing on like a on a you know four thousand or an SSL. You know, yeah. Yeah. Um, so I really I really love that board. Uh, I it has a great sound. The EQs are one of the best I've ever heard. 
and I love the mix bus. It just it sounds open and wide, and when you hit it, it has you know it has teeth. It doesn't get squishy. It doesn't kill the sound. It, it gives it a little more. Yeah, bite. it just gives it some some life and some bite. Um, do you feel like at this point, like you've learned all the tricks that the console can do, and you know all those tools, or are you still discovering them? And how long have you been mixing through that console? Uh, I've been mixing through the console for about for about seven years now, and there is definitely a lot more that it can do. That it has functions I just don't need. Um, my method is that I have the same setup every time. I have all my outputs labeled. They come up to a certain spot on the console. Console is labeled. It never changes. And uh, I have all my outboard gear set so that uh, I'm either uh, running out of Pro Tools through the outboard gear or I'm sending to the outboard gear either from Pro Tools or from a send or a bus on the console. So, uh, and, and the reason I do that is that uh, my outboard gear is fixed in position. I don't change it. And I know that people think that that doesn't sound creative, but I actually view it the other way around. Uh, it allows me to be more creative because I'm not having to run back and forth and always, you know, wonder, you know, is the stay level exactly in the same spot? Oh, what about my 1176s? Are they exactly in the same spot? I can vary how much or how little compression I'm using either by how hard I hit it or how much I blend in at the fader. And then, uh, and then the other processing I do is all in Pro Tools. So, uh, and I like this setup uh, simply because uh, it sounds good. It recalls quickly. I have to compete with guys who mix totally in the box. And as an analog guy, I want to be able to recall uh, mixes just as quickly as they do. So, you know, yeah, it limits me a little bit, but I think limitations are good too. Yeah. So uh, to bring back the painter analogy, when you have a, a compressor like an 1176, you just think about it like it's the color blue and you're just going to add some blue exactly. to your mix instead of thinking yeah. like it's a whole spectrum of colors. Yeah, yeah. And so um, to reiterate that, you can just take a sound from Pro Tools, send it over to the piece of outboard gear, send more or less of it, and it sort of affects how that piece of gear sounds. And then that piece of gear comes back to the console and it's included in the mix. Yeah, and it's on a fader. So I can either, you know, put a little bit of it in, I can put a lot of it in, uh, you know, it runs parallel. So uh, I can do a little or a lot, or I can automate it on the console to be, you know, say out in the verse, but in, in the chorus, you know, uh, I can, I have a lot of control that way over how I use it. Okay. So share with us some of your favorite effects or pieces of outboard gear. What are some, what are four pieces of outboard gear that find their way into a lot of mixes? Okay. Um, well, these all end up in every mix. Uh, to varying degrees, most of these end up in most Every mixes. until next week when you change your mind. and have Exactly. A <laughs> uh, distressors, that's an obvious one. Okay, and a distressor, I'm going to reiterate some of these for people who don't know these items. So the distressor is a super versatile compressor. Yes. And that's very interesting because that one truly is an entire spectrum of colors. Yes. Um, are there, is there like, do you use it in kind of like a gentle compression mode or do you no. use it in its nuke mode or something like that? No, uh, I have them set up as parallels. For my kick and snare. Um, that's the trick I, I picked up from Joe Ciccarelli. And they just sort of add, they give you that punch. Yeah, in your I face. think of it as like uh, on kick, it gives me 
it gives me a solid punch sound that I can like bring up. And on snare, I have it pretty squishy so that I can vary the length of the snare. Right. So if I want a snare to have more of a more of a ring to it, I can bring that up, and it and it gives it more of that. And again, that's a parallel send, so that's coming up on its own fader. Yes. And you can blend it in. So as I can want. blend in as much or as little as I want. So now, if somebody, if a, if a rock star doesn't have the actual distressor box, they might have the new distressor plugin, for example, and they yeah, might be able they to can do that, mimic or, that in the computer. Or any any compressor that you know sounds distorted and crunchy or squishy or whatnot. Okay. Awesome. What What's the next one? Uh, I have uh, an AKG BX10 spring reverb that I am absolutely in love with. It's the only reverb I've ever found where I can drown a vocal in reverb and people still think it's dry. Wow. And it does just this wonderful thing where, you know, you can just pour it on, but people, it, it remains... Somehow, the, like it connects so perfectly to the vocal that they think you haven't done anything. And um, I, I know that there's the BX20, which is the bigger version, and I've tried those and used them and think they're wonderful. I like the BX10 better for lead vocals because it doesn't sound like a BX20. It's somehow darker and blends better with a vocal. Okay. What's the next one? Uh, oh, Gates Stay Level. Gates Stay Level. Okay. I bought my Stay Level back around 1990, 91, from a guy in Portland for $50. (laughs) (laughs) I then then traded it to C6 Steve, who uh, at the time was not C6 Steve. He was just Steve who worked at Moon Music in Olympia. And then he used it for about a year and then uh, traded it back to me for a microphone that he wanted. Didn't he have a cameo on SpongeBob for a little while too, or...? Oh, I, that guy's everywhere. <laughs> I'm just making that up. I apologize. I actually don't know C6 Steve, but I, I, I want uh, to. Uh, you've had Vance Powell in here, though, and uh, Vance uh, records his records. Okay, great. So, cool. Yeah. Cool. Um, so anyway, uh, yeah, that thing has been on every lead vocal of every mix I've done since about 1996. And so, again, you send to it, you bring it back on a fader, yes. it adds like... Uh, so the stay level has a quality that it just the the vocal level is just there and it's not going anywhere, right? It just sits it in one place yeah, and you can uh, blend it in. Yeah, I mean, and again, yeah, this is on a parallel bus, so I blend it in, but um, and I usually am hitting it pretty good, you know, at least minus ten, but up to minus thirty, um, depending on the vocal. Uh, but I just love how it brings a a creamy quality to it. Um, it's, it's been with me since I started. Uh, I actually, uh, this, I got it before I was even doing records. I was playing bass in a band and I, I wanted a tube compressor and I couldn't find an LA-2A. So uh, I talked to this guy and he's like, oh, I've got a tube compressor. You, you can know, And he one. sold it to me for 50 bucks. So nice. score. Nice. So <laughs> Rockstar is a reminder. When Craig's talking about minus 10 and minus 30, don't think quieter, think louder. Yeah. Because you take that compressed signal and you bring it up and it actually makes it more in your face, more in your face. Yeah. All right. So uh, how about one more thing that you love to to uh, send off and include in your mix? You know, I have a uh, I have a Neve thirty three six zero nine that's on my that lives on my drum bus, and that compressor can do no wrong. It really can't. It doesn't matter how hard you hit it. Just running through it makes things sound better. Yeah. I remember doing a shootout of different stereo compressors at one point, 
and I had a lot and they all sounded great, but a lot of them seemed to almost make it sound as if it was playing back through something else. Uh-huh. And the 33609 was the one that just seemed to sound open and transparent and punchy and just kind of made everything bigger. And yeah, it sounds like Neve. Come towards me, you know? Yeah, it's, it is it is that sound that I, uh, that I associate with really great Neve gear, you know? So if, if you're listening and you're thinking about getting a 33609, just cancel your vacations for the next couple of years and, and get one. <laughs> All right, yeah. so Craig, here's an important follow through to those questions. And it's just simply this. So people listening, when they hear all those items, do they have to rush out and get those? Or do they have to copy those exact settings in a plug-in? How did you arrive at those sounds? Okay. Uh, This is a a really good question because uh, for years, as I was working and mixing, um, I would be working in studios that were not my own and eventually got my own. But that meant I had to take meticulous notes on everything. And every studio I would go to was different. They had different outboard gear, different console, different monitoring. And what I started to notice was that over the years, when I would really get a mix right, when it would be really, really right, and I went back and looked at the notes, all the same gear was in the same places at the same settings, doing the same things. Uh, so I started to sort of distill that down to go like, well, what is the stay level doing on the lead vocal when the lead vocal sounds really, really good? Um, how much of it have I blended in? Uh, how hard is it hitting the console? You know, why when I set up the bass to have a, you know, a parallel VCA compressor running through a Pultec with the 100 hertz you know, all the way up. Why does that sound better when I blend it in at this exact level hitting, you know, doing these things? And I I have like all these things that I would try. I would, you know, talk to other engineers. I would uh, read articles uh, and get information that way. And sometimes I would just get creative and try. And, uh, you know, I would find these techniques that I found that when I repeated these certain things, I got a certain result. And so I started to build a template based on all of these things, which is why I can now have a studio where a knob never turns on the outboard gear. So it's really an empirical process, right? Yeah. It took me a long time to uh, come to this, but I can show you, like I have notebooks from, you know, several years where uh, when I was working in my studio and you know, fussing with things and turning knobs and all that, how, you know, look, this mix sounds really good. And you'll notice that all the settings are the same settings I'm using today. Um, and this mix here didn't turn out so hot. And you'll notice that I strayed from the the path, you know, and uh, the formula. And I don't want to make it sound like, I don't want people to think that every mix I do sounds the same because they don't. You just discovered that if you tuned your guitar before you played it, it always sounded better. Yeah. I mean, really, that's what it comes down to is that truly it comes down to this Uh, engineering 101. If you're studying audio engineering, uh, gain staging is everything. And what I've found is that when I gain stage certain pieces of gear in certain ways, I can then start to get this effect where I have optimized everything. And I start off every mix by getting my low end set. I, I set my kick drum, and then uh, I set my bass guitar, and they always hit the console at the loudest part of the song 
they always hit at the exact same place on the meter. I've got my meters set to peak program. And that way I know the actual peak level that they're hitting at because mm-hmm. VU is a little sloppy. Right. You don't quite and so, know. And so again, rather than you telling us some numbers right now on the podcast as if they could be replicated somewhere else, what about the process of knowing, again, you said it was through lots of mixes, but how do you, somebody who's listening, you know, they're like, okay, so I got to find that sweet spot for the loudest part yes. of my low end. And then what, what do I do then to judge once that you, it's right? Once you have set that, then you start, and you know that that's like where your low end sits best and you have your system in place, you've got your compressors, your EQs, and you have those sounds where you like them. And you might judge that based on your favorite listening playback system. Yeah, right? and Until it, you're like, of this course sounds it, great to me. Yeah, it, it, all, it all depends on what style you're working on. I, I would make a bass guitar sound very different for a country song than I would for, uh, like if it's a folk record or a jazz record. There's a very different kind of sound for, you know, your snare drum or your lead vocal, you know, depending on the style. I'm not thinking about style or I'm not talking about style. I'm always thinking about the, you know, the audience that I'm mixing for. But I I'm not thinking about that when I'm setting my gain staging because this is something that's just boring that every audio engineer should do. I set my gain staging first. I do it with the low end first because the low end requires the most amount of energy. So I go to the loudest part of the song and I make sure that that kick is hitting the same place where it should hit so that my gain stage is right. Then I set my bass guitar to do the same exact thing at that part of the song. And then I start to build up the rhythm section around that, and those two don't change unless they go down. They can never go above it. They have to go down from there because we've hit the optimum spot for the console. So later on, if the kick and bass seem like they're not loud enough, you don't just reach over and make them louder. No, I have the best trick in the world for this. You want, Are you ready? We're ready. We okay. want to know the best trick in the world for kick okay. and bass guitar. So it happens every time where uh, you you get to the end of the mix and you realize that you know you're uh, coming out of the bridge into the last chorus and suddenly oh no I can't hear the kick drum or the toms anymore okay so what you do is you take <laughs> in pro tools I'm gonna tell you how to do it in pro tools I can do it on the console because I I have VCAs on my console if you have an SSL you have VCAs you can do that too uh, but in Pro Tools, I create a group, and I put everything in the group except for four things. Kick, snare, toms, and bass. Those don't go in the group, but literally everything else goes in the group, and I call this group everything else. <laughs> <laughs> Got it? Now, what I do is I create a VCA for this group. Uh, voltage-controlled amplifier. So in other words, I've already gone through and done the mix. I have all my moves and all my automation, but I want to be able to take everything else and control the volume with all that automation intact. So I create a VCA, and it allows me to change the level of everything together as a group and keep all my automation moves. So I grab the VCA, and I go to the loudest part of the song, and I turn it all the way to zero. So all I'm listening to is kick, snare, toms, and bass. And I close my eyes, and I start to turn the VCA up. And when the mix gets really good, 
I make a mental note of where it's at, close my eyes again, and I turn it up until it gets bad. And then I find the sweet spot in between the two and I leave it there. And then that's where all those instruments live through the mix. Yep. That's brilliant, man. I love it. Yep. There's, um, I did a webinar recently with Bjorgvin Benedictson, and he was talking about what he called the 1DB rule, which was the, a little similar in that it was take a sound, and if you're not sure where to go with it, you know, like move it down a DB and move it down a DB until it's too low, move it up a DB, move it up a DB until it's too high, and then find that sweet spot, you know? Yeah. That's great advice. Yeah. The, the other thing I do to help with that um, is, and this is a technique I just developed in the last year, is that I, uh, when I mix, I put electric guitars in last. Mm-hmm. And the reason why is that I love electric guitars, and I find the sound so intoxicating that I always put way too much. You know, uh, it's, it, it's like over-salting your food or, you know, using too much ketchup or whatever. You can totally drown out the other good flavors in a mix just because you like one flavor too much. That's fascinating. So for... For you guys, for rock stars, it doesn't might not be guitars. You might even if you're doing EDM, it might be like some particular sound yeah. in the mix. Um, if you're doing acoustic folk music, you might like the vocals so much. Whatever it is in your mix that is your favorite thing, save that for last so that you don't well, overdo it too much. And the thing, the reason why I I talk about electric guitars is because they carry so much mid range energy that they tend to easily overpower things like vocals and you know snare drums or or any kind of articulation you have that you need in other instruments. So for me it's definitely that because it is so uh so mid-range heavy and uh plus I've always just been a fan of rock. Yeah. And you can always just do a guitar up mix at the end if you need more rock yeah. and roll. Yeah. All right, so Craig, I know you are pretty brilliant when it comes to drums and recording oh, and mixing drums. Thank you. <laughs> and you. And you've told me some <laughs> I stories struggle in the with past. it every day. Well, uh, well you, uh, <laughs> you're doing it right. So you've told me in the past about the importance for you of understanding the drum kit and really beginning there. Can you yeah. talk about what that means to you and that whole process of really capturing great sounding drums? Yeah, um, there is a video online uh, at Artist House Music. I I actually have like a series of videos I did like eight years ago. And one of them in particular is on recording drums. So you can go look at that. And I uh, I actually just, someone posted it on a page the other day and I saw it again. And, you know, I still kind of stand by what I said there. But the main thing for me is that I I have a philosophy where I think there are certain things just that should be left alone you know, that should be done with minimal processing. And that would be my close mics, my kick mic, my snare mics, my toms, and my overheads should be like set up to get the best sound just without much processing. Very little EQ, very little compression, if any, and make sure that I just tune the drum kit and work with the drummer to get the sounds that are right for the song. And then I have the opposite of that where I have mics that are set up to specifically to, you know, get lots of compression or lots of distortion or crazy EQ or even, uh, you know, distorted reverb sends or whatever to give the kit its character. And those things can then at mix be varied or eliminated 
or used exclusively, depending on what the mix calls for. But I really believe that you get better results when you don't mess around with the basics, when you just do the basics right and you know use good, solid audio engineering principles on on the basic stuff, don't get fancy, and then have some other mics that you set up and some other uh, tricks that you set up. So how many mics might typically equal the mics that, that make up the basic? Okay, so uh, normally I would do like uh, inside kick, and then an outside kick mic, which uh, I tend to mess with that one. If I want to do something with the kick drum, that's the one I will, you know, filter or distort or gate or whatever I want. Uh, snare top and bottom, uh, hi-hat, a mic on each tom, and overheads, stereo overheads. And then I might add like a uh, an extra mic at the snare for like to trigger effects or maybe uh, like a mono room mic, usually a ribbon of some sort that's close up to the kit that I will compress uh, or distort or both heavy EQ or filtering. Uh, sometimes I'll run that through an effects processor of some sort, tape delay or, uh, you know, I love old digital delays like PCM 41s. They have a lot of character. Now that mono mic, um, is there a big difference depending on whether you place it over on the floor tom side of the drums or over on the hi-hat snare side of the drums? Yeah, there's a big difference. Uh, usually I set it kind of uh, a little ways away from the kit, usually about three or four feet away from the kit, below the ride cymbal, um, pointing at the snare drum, but on that floor tom side. Because I feel like that, if you think about that, if you bend down in front of the kit and you're kind of at a 45 degree angle to the kick drum you can see every drum from that point oh i love it the photographer's analogy i always like that one for recording. yeah but the great thing about that position is that you get less hi-hat and you get less of the splash off from the bottom of the snare which i that's why i've chosen that spot for that mic is because those are two things that are very hard to control when you're when you're really crushing something yeah it's, that's the mid-range elements too yeah. right, that take over all right, great. So awesome tips about the drum stuff, man. Really cool stuff. Yeah. Now, what about tuning the drums? What What's the meaning of tuning the drums? If somebody is dealing with a drum kit that just sounds crappy, are there some sort of good, easy tricks that they might try out to improve the sound of the drums? Yeah. Uh, what I did, I got very frustrated with getting bad drum sounds. So I decided uh, to take it upon myself to learn how to do this. I started collecting cymbals um, because cymbals are a, a huge part of your overall drum sound, and most drummers don't buy good cymbals. So after that, I went and there was a, a drum shop in Portland uh, where they make custom drums called Allegra. And uh, I went there and started hanging out with a guy named Tony who would teach me how to tune drums. That was his job to tune the drums uh, there, and, and he taught me a lot. I went through and tried, you know, various techniques. I've read about it online. I've watched a ton of YouTube videos. Uh, and then I just speak with drummers. And over time, I got to the point where I was pretty darn good at it, you know. Um, but this is one of those things where you can't just watch a video or read an article and be good at it right away. You have to train your ear and learn the technique. 
Yeah. You know. So now, is there one version of a drum kit that sounds great and that would just fit any song? And so, depending <laughs> on whether you're doing country, hip hop, or whatever, isn't it? you it, just it, use that kit and it's going to be great. Yeah, that's the myth. No, because as many different songs as there are, there are that many different drummers and there are that many different drum kits. And then in that kit, there are so many different variations. I, I mean, I'm kind of at a point now where I feel like as long as we have a kit that's working, like that has decent heads and is not, you know, broken, uh, I can probably find a way to make it sound musical. Yeah. Um, but of course you have to have a drummer that's going to cooperate and it's a drummer who is musical. Yeah. And if, you know, there are certain drummers, like, especially here in Nashville, when I get hired on a session, I, if I show up and, you know, Shannon Forrest or, you know, Jerry Rowe or, you know, uh, Jeremy Latito, if they're playing, I really don't have to do much. You know, we might say, Hey, let's, uh, let's open up the kick drum a little bit, or can I get the snare a little deader or maybe take it up a tick? You know, um, but really, I don't have to do that much because I'm spoiled. I live in Nashville where the best musicians in the world are. All right. So two questions and then we'll get away from drums. Uh, you once described to me the process of sitting at the kit and making sure that the kit sort of sounded good for what you envisioned in your head that the drum part might be for a song mm -hmm. and then miking it up and sort of closing that whole system of the way the kit sounded to you sitting at it and the way it sounds in the other room before the drummer even sat down. Is that sort of part of your process at all still? Uh, obviously not with those guys, but... Yeah, um, it, well, it all depends. Uh, there are certain records, like if you listen to the um, Wren's record, Heartache in a Song, that's something where I did all the tuning. Now, the drummer on that, uh, Jacob Arnold, is really a fantastic drummer. But we were purposely trying to take the musicians out of their comfort zone by doing things that were, you know, like kind of contrary to what they usually have to do as studio musicians. Uh, Jacob was having to hit so soft that he was barely like lifting the stick to hit the snare drum. And I would go in and tune everything. And I, I'm someone who likes to tune to the key of the song. So I usually will ask like the guitar player or the piano player to just play softly while I'm tuning. So I can pick the right pitch for like rack tom and floor tom. And so I can get that snare that's usually either on the root or the fifth uh, and, of the song. And picking a pitch for a drum is is literally like taking the drum key and tuning it up a little, little tighter or loosening it a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then, you know, you have to work on things like the amount of decay that each thing has. Like a tom that has a long decay that's tuned low is going gonna, is gonna to occupy a lot more sonic space than one that's tuned higher and just kind of goes away. Yeah. You put a close mic on that and gain it up in your mix and all of a sudden you have a, uh, you know, a one bar 808 going. Yeah, exactly. So, um, but, you know, if you if you listen to that record, especially there's a song on there called Crooked where... Uh, they were going through the song and I, I walked out on the studio floor and I said, guys, I've got an idea for this. Do you trust me? And they were like, mm, yeah, you know, okay. So I told the bass player to go home because uh, we didn't need him that day because I knew that we didn't need bass and I had them slow it. I said, can you take the tempo of this down to like the slowest you can possibly humanly play it and still be musical? And then my concept for the drums on that was I wanted it to sound like they were broken and that we had recorded them fast and then slowed them down on tape. 
So I went in and I tuned everything down, got the head, the heads on all the drums is like to the point where they were just floppy and the bottom snares are just flopping uh, really slowly kind of in time with the music. And, uh, and then I just put a lot of distortion on it and threw a blanket on the piano and ran it through a reverb. And then we recorded the song that way. And it pretty much, the mix sounds pretty much like it did on the floor that day. That's cool, man. I like that. I love having that experimental vision when you're in the studio and having yeah. an opportunity to pursue it. Yeah. Those are the, that's why it's a lot more fun sometimes to make records that might not be heard by as many people, but you were able to really be expressive artistically Yeah, than the ones that, you know, maybe you're doing things quickly and it sounds like pop music and and yeah. the most people listen to it. Yeah, and you know, I mean, the the truth is uh, that a song like the one I just described is never going to be a hit. It's just, it's known. When you're making it, you know that this is not a hit. But it's meant to do something that's more important. And actually, the whole reason music was created by humans, and that is to express an emotion that words alone are not capable of expressing. That's awesome. Well, dude, we're about to go into the jam session where I ask you a series okay. of fast questions. But before we do, Rockstars, I want to remind you that you can find the links to all the things that Craig is talking about in the show notes. They're going to be at recordingstudiorockstars.com. You can also come join us in the Facebook group, which is facebook.com slash groups slash recording studio rockstars ask to be invited and i'll just include you in the group you can say hello to everybody and then if you're listening to this on an iphone right now you can simply open the podcast app find this episode playing and i believe you'll see the logo there if you touch the logo with your finger it sort of disintegrates into the show notes and all of a sudden you're looking at the show notes right there you can just click right through it'll take you to the website um, it'll take you to craig's site and you can find out more about all the records we're talking about see the videos and all that cool stuff so we'll see you guys in just a moment for the jam session hey everybody it's lid shaw and i want to thank you so much for listening to this episode of recording studio rock stars i really appreciate you and i really appreciate your time and as a way of saying thank you i've created a special mix tutorial just for you rock stars totally free called the mix master bundle with it, you get over two hours of detailed videos watching over my shoulder as I mix a song in my studio. Plus, I give you the free ebook that explains how I recorded the tracks, and you get downloadable multi tracks so that you can practice your mixes, including the Pro Tools session file, using nothing but stock plugins in Pro Tools, all of which you would find in any other DAW, whether you're on Logic or Studio One or Reaper. Maybe you're struggling with trying to improve your mix technique, or maybe you just simply don't have access to multi track files or can't record a full drum set in your studio. I wanted to give you a chance to create your own mixes from full drum kit, bass, and guitars recorded in my studio. The song is called American Winter, and it's off my instrumental record, Skadoosh, and it's all available for you totally free right now. All you need to do to get it is text Mix Master Bundle to 33444, and I'll send it directly to your email. Again, that's Mix Master Bundle with no space to 33444, or you can go directly to mixmasterbundle.com Enter your email, and I'll send all the files directly to you. Thanks so much, rock stars. We'll see you guys in the jam session. Cheers. 
Hello, Rockstars. It's Lid Shaw with Recording Studio Rockstars. I'm back here with Craig Alvin. And Craig, we're going to go into the jam session. Are you ready to jam? I am. Awesome. Well, when you started out in recording and pursuing music as a career, what was holding you back from getting started? Uh, I think it was that uh, I wasn't focused. Uh, I wanted to play bass. I wanted to be in you know several bands. I was doing too much stuff. I was in school trying to learn theology and, you know, I was just not focused on it. And it took a decision to stop playing in bands, to stop running live sound for everyone, to, you know, get out of school and to just focus on recording. That was really what what changed everything for me. Well, it was a good decision that you made. Good for some, us. And some good, days, I think so. Good for our ears. <laughs> All right. So share with us some of the best advice you received. Uh, maybe, you know, you had some great tips from Joe Ciccarelli. Any, any other yeah, advice I think like that? The very first time I walked into the studio and Joe was there, uh, we were setting up drums. And uh, this was the 24-track days. And uh, we needed as many tracks as we could get. So when we were setting up drums, we decided to mix the overheads with the hi-hat and the tom mics. And I looked at him and said, we're going to, we, we want to mix these now? And he looked at me like I was the biggest idiot in the world. And he's like, we're mixing right now. We're always mixing. Mixing is our job. And uh, that was a huge revelation to me. The truth is, it doesn't matter. When you choose a mic, you're mixing. When you choose a location for that mic, you're mixing. When you choose a particular musician to play a part, you're mixing. When you choose it's to wake mixing. up in the morning, you're mixing. Yeah, it's all mixing. When At least when you show up at the studio, from the time you walk in the door, you're mixing. You know, there's that great documentary the VH1 classic album series where they cover the making of Pink Floyd, Dark Side of the Moon. Yes. And they show that the entire album was done on 16 tracks. Yes. And the drums took up a whopping total of two tracks, which was probably a bold move for them to even go stereo at that point. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, mix it. Mix it they down. They were always mixing. Make a decision. Make a decision, be happy about it. That He used to say that too. There's another bit of advice that I got. It kind of makes sense. Uh, in kind of an Oklahoma way. I lived in Oklahoma for a couple of years. And my friend Ted, who spent some time in the music business and is a very successful restaurateur, he would always say in his Oklahoma way, the difference between whether something happened or didn't happen is whether it happened or not. <laughs> <laughs> and <laughs> it makes no sense. But what he meant was, if something's not happening, like in a mix or on a session— if you choose to let it go by, then that's your choice. It didn't happen because you didn't make it happen. I think he would say to like make you take responsibility for the situation. Yeah. And uh, it's kind of silly, but I really think about that a lot. Yeah. I mean, the idea of taking action when something's not working and making it right is yes. really important. And I, I, I remember realizing when I was making records that a lot of what I did uh, and probably still do is I used to say it's remove the suck. So yeah. like you just go in and you start doing something and you get better at it, but you start recognizing all the things that just don't sound good and yeah. you just address them one at a time and get rid of them. Uh, I was working on a record last year and I showed up and uh, the producer was someone I knew very well. I didn't know the artist at all. 
And it was pretty clear that they were not prepared. And they were fantastic musicians, like surprisingly great. Uh, but the songs weren't there. And we struggled for two days. And uh, I knew we were going to be there for a couple of weeks. And I finally just went to the producer and said, you know, maybe I'm overstepping my bounds here, but it seems to me like you need to send all of us home and just sit with your artist and write. And this is someone I'd been working with for 15 years. So I had earned the respect to be able to say that. And he looked at me and he was like, you're right. And so they stopped. They sent everyone home for two days and they just finished the songs. And when we came back, it was great. Wow. It was great. But I, I And you was, got a two-day vacation. Well, I, <laughs> it wasn't much of a vacation. I mean, there was I was in a town where there wasn't much to do, but uh, I sat in the hotel a lot. But the thing was, is like, it was going to keep going the way it was going. And I realized that in that instance, I had the ability to make something happen. And that was just simply by having a cup of coffee with the producer and going, you know what the truth is. I know what the truth is. It's your decision, but you know that this would be profitable. And yeah. he was like, yeah, you're right. That's the thing to do. Isn't it the Einstein quote that uh, the definition of insanity is to keep repeating the same action and hoping for a different result? Yeah. And yeah. eventually you just got to acknowledge that it ain't going to fix itself unless you do yeah. something. Yeah. And I mean, the same thing goes for like if a guitar player doesn't have his guitar in tune, you know, why do you keep going with the take? You know, if the singer has a sore throat that day, don't beat him into the ground and, and make him sing until they have no voice. Let him get better. You know, if there's a hum in the bass amp, don't just record the bass with a hum. Go fix it. And, you know, if you get home and listen to a mix in your car and realize that you hadn't turned the lead guitar up loud enough on the solo, but you already sent it off to mastering, you have a choice. Do you turn around, go back to the studio and run a new mix and send that off to mastering, or do you let it ride? Yeah. And it really comes down to your commitment. And I'm telling you, the people who win at this are the people who are dedicated and will not let that shit pass. That's awesome, man. That's intense advice, too. Well, so now, Craig, share with us a recording tip, hack, or secret sauce. And I want to ask you to lead it towards vocals and how you get a vocal track ready when you're mixing to have it really just sit as well as you can in a mix. Okay. Uh, the first thing I do, I, I believe in the careful care and feeding of compressors. And what you'll notice is that um, a lot of times you get into Pro Tools and you look at the waveform. And, you know, it'll be very loud in the bridge and uh, a little quieter in the chorus and very quiet in the verse. The first thing I do is just go through with clip gain and I kind of even that out, like in a very general sense, so that it's kind of one volume the whole way. And Can uh, you do any of that visually or is it Yeah, you can do it visually, ear? you know, uh, and that's how I do it. I try and get it all so that it's like more or less the same volume. Ballpark. And, and the reason why uh, is because... Uh, I want the compressor and the other effects that I'm using to be more or less, you know, in the butter zone there for, for the lead zone. vocal. Um, <laughs> Is that and, the name of your future studio, the butter zone? <laughs> the butter zone. Uh, yeah, I want it to be uh, doing the right thing all the time. But the problem is, is that if it's too quiet, then it's not going to be quite there. And if it's too loud, then you're going to go too far. So I get it so that I can set my compressor once 
and leave it set. And then I just simply use automation to, you know, turn the, the volume down in the verses and up in the chorus and, yeah, you know, after I mean, compression. after, after yeah. all that. Yeah. Um, so then, and then for you rock stars, in case you didn't quite understand that, that means if you have one long wave file of vocal performance and it's got quiet bits and loud bits in it, you can actually go and chop it up into different sections and then just turn up the volume of that wave. Yeah. You can increase the gain. Clip gain in Pro Tools, uh, I believe you have it in most DAWs, or you can just use the gain plugin and process it to be a little bit louder yeah. and a little quieter in sections. Yeah, and then what I do after that is uh, I usually uh, will filter out any like low-end rumble, any junk like that that you don't want in the vocal. I go through and fix any like P's that, you know, vocal pops. And I tend to use the, what is it, the RX plugin, mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. or I like to use uh, the linear EQ from Waves and just use those uh, in Audio Suite. After that, the best thing I've learned for a vocal to get it to sit right is something we uh, we used to do with tape. And I have the Studer, the UAD Studer plugin. And I'll run you down real quick my Craig Alvin custom vocal setting on that. It's 456 tape with the noise turned off. And then I run it at uh, 7.5 inches per second. I turn the bias all the way up. And then uh, I go and... Does write... that make it brighter? No, that makes it darker, darker and it okay. saturates it. I also turn it up to plus nine, so you get more saturation. And then I uh, right above the bias, there's a high frequency tilt that's on the record side. And I turn that up to where the high end sounds right again. Interesting. And this what this is a... does is it gives you tape saturation, but that works in a really beautiful way with S's. Like you can get by with so much less DSing, and it's probably the best sounding vocal compressor you're going to find. Wow, that's cool. And that would be your whole vocal sound might go through that, or that's a parallel yeah, I will, thing? Yeah, I will EQ, and then I'll hit that. This is I do this you know, with a plug-in, so it's right on the track. Hmm. Uh, and then I usually follow that with you know, some more compression or you know, whatever else I want after that. Um, and Rockstars, for these amazing tips that Craig is sharing with you, you can send him, he's going to give you his address to send him boxes of chocolates, um, <laughs> bouquets of, of flowers, thank you notes. <laughs> All right, that, so. <laughs> that trick works well on on a lot of things. Uh, try it on acoustic guitars. It'll like if you ever want to get that really nice, even, bright Nashville sound. Yeah, it's yeah. It's okay, beautiful. killer man, I love it because um, you know listeners have been asking me. They've been saying, Lidge, we want more how to tips. We want yeah. more hard. You know what can we use and maybe a little less story. So thank you for including yeah. that. So um, now share with us a favorite hardware tool for the studio. Something that you like to have around with you that. Um, if you're going to your studio, anybody's studio, it always seems to make the session better, something that, that physical. Man, I would say that uh, you really can't underestimate the power of having like a, some good delays. Like in particular, I mentioned it once that uh, PCM41, which is by Lexicon, and they're kind of looked down upon because the PCM42 is like supposedly the better version. But the PCM41 has a sound. And I think this is important just in general to have bad gear laying around. Like lots of like studios in Nashville don't tend to have bad gear. And the great thing about having gear that uh, that's bad like the PCM41 uh, is that it has built in character. 
it has a sound that harkens to a particular era. And I love, like the PCM41, I will turn the delay all the way off, but turn the mix all the way up and run acoustic guitar through it. So you can turn a really nice sounding, you know, uh, Martin guitar into a crappy old arch top that way. That's cool. And it just, it sounds cool. So you're Um, not even using it for the delay, you're using it for the tone. No, for the tone, yeah. And there's uh, like a lot of old like Altec consoles or whatever have just these crazy really kind of bad sounding mic pre's and EQs that are phasey and and weird spring reverbs and stuff. And those things uh, are fun for, you know, recording percussion, you know, like a tambourine with a massive Altec limiter and spring reverb on it is a wonderful, wonderful thing. Um, I, I really wish that like in Portland, when I was working there, we had all kinds of weird gear because that's really, you know, I mean, it's all we had. But here in Nashville, everybody goes for like the really high end, right, clean, clean stuff, pristine right. stuff. And I find it a lot harder to get the sounds that I like with that stuff. So, and the great news is you can buy this stuff for cheap, you know? Well, so what's important to the process to be able to use all those things? Is it, do you need to kind of have them plugged in ahead of time so that it's real easy to just send something? Well, I mean, it's important to, you know, to just mess around with stuff, you know, and maybe if you're, if you're on a session, like a lot of the sessions that I do are actually the typical in Nashville where you got two hours and you're going to cut five songs. So I don't get time to play. I have to know. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, if I'm gonna, if I think I want that, I will put that in the setup. Yeah. And just have it ready to go. But um, I think if you're just someone who's making records with friends, uh, and you find some cheap stuff at the pawn shop, I mean, uh, when I was working on the Features Wilderness record, one of the things I did was I just went around to pawn shops and bought all the old 12-bit audio gear I could find. And eventually, uh, I found this thing called the Yamaha Rex 50, which is a 12-bit version of the SPX 90. Which, wow. And we all know that the SPX 90 is kind of grainy and not the best sounding, but I, I think that makes it cool. The 12-bit is that times 10, you know. And uh, that became really a big part of Mark's sound after that. Uh, he, he had to go out and, you know, find a couple of them because they're old and grumpy. Um, and he always wants to have one. So when they tour that he, he carries a couple along with him. So he has one and a spare. That's cool, uh, man. Great advice. And then a a reminder again, it's not about, you have to go out and find these exact same pieces of gear. It's that just look. No, when I found that, I had never even heard of one. I was just exploring music stores, pawn shops, you know, whatever I could find. And I saw it and went, well, this is weird. And it was 50 bucks. So but don't be surprised it. if those go flying off the eBay shelves as soon as this episode <laughs> goes live. All right. So now share with us a favorite software tool for the studio. I just am completely in love with the uh, UAD tape emulations, um, the, especially the Ampex and uh, the Studer. But I found Echo Boy by Sound Toys. I'll tell you what I do with that. I turn off the delay turn it all the way to zero and I turn the mix all the way up. And then they have all these different ones you can go through. They have Echoplex, they have Space Echo, they have Cassette Deck, they have uh, Telray, they have um, Transmitter, they have uh, FM radio, they have AM radio, they have all these different different um, filtered sounds that essentially are what I was talking about with uh, with the weird audio gear. And you can vary them in all kinds of ways with, you know, EQ or whatever. But I I do that 
all the time, all the time. Uh, I have settings like presets I've made for piano, for acoustic guitar, for background vocals, for, you know, I'm using a delay, but I'm not, I'm not using the delay at all. All I'm doing, I'm treating it more like a channel strip, you know, where, uh, where I have built in character. Mm-hmm. And that's that's something that I'm constantly doing. Yeah. So you talk about saving presets. Is there any trick we might want to know about for how you effectively name presets and keep them organized? Or do you just kind of have a long list? Usually what I'll do uh, is I kind of, I remember these things in context of the song. So like I have a setting on one that's, that's uh, Windy Street's bass because I was mixing a song for uh, an artist named Molly Marlette. And the song was Windy Streets. So now when I hear a song and I think, oh, I want that sound, I think, oh, I have to go find Windy Streets. And so I go find that. And I'll name those things kind of based on the context. I have a setting on a reverb called uh, Adam Lester Magic because there was a guitar player named Adam Lester. And I found this preset that just made his guitar come alive on a song. And I use Adam Lester magic on a lot of guitars now. <laughs> That's cool, man. Yeah. I like it. It'd be a cool trip through your presets and all these bizarre yeah. names and everything. All right. So now um, share with us a favorite or like a great resource for the business side of recording studios, recording and making music, whether it's a tip for something online or a process or a person, whatever you want. Hmm. I'm not good with the business side. Honestly, uh, what the thing that's helped me the most uh, is just getting management to do negotiation for me because I always have, you know, these motivations where it's like, oh, but the music's really cool. And, you know, it would be nice to have just even a little money, you know, because I'm still like a kid with this stuff. I love doing it. So I always sell myself too cheap. So now that I have management that does the negotiating uh, for me, I don't sell myself too cheap. Yeah. So I don't know. I guess if uh, listeners can find management, but maybe the idea is you it's can tough. even, it could even just be somebody else. Yeah. Anybody yeah. that can help. Um, so, all right, now this is hypothetical, but let's say you were starting all over again, which you did when you moved to Nashville. Yeah. But in um, this sort of advice for somebody, a lot of listeners may find themselves in this boat right now, you know, mm-hmm. starting out. If you had to move to a strange city, you needed uh, a simple recording studio setup to, to get started. You know, you didn't have a lot to spend on it and you needed to find people to make music with and record and you needed to make ends meet so that you yeah. can keep doing this and not have to quit and go do something else. Okay, I've got an answer. I don't know that it's exactly what you're asking for, but this is what I would do if I was in that situation. I, I wouldn't think of gear yet. I would go find a job someplace where musicians gather, either a bar, coffee shop, maybe Lyft or Uber driver, someplace where you can meet the people who are making music. And I would save until I do a budget. You should have a budget. Do your budget and figure out how much money you need a month to live and save until you have three months, uh, you know, living expenses saved up. Put that away. Do not touch it. Now, by this time, you've met the musicians. You know the scene. You know who the important ones are in the scene. Keep doing your job and get behind those people and push like crazy. Um, I wouldn't even start charging for your work yet. I would just get behind them, do everything you can, uh, help them record in their studios, help make their studios better, help uh, the local studio out, uh, engineer sessions for free, um, 
do live sound, you know, help them unload after gigs, make sure their instruments are working correctly, you know, uh, set the intonation on their guitars, put some new heads on the drums, do that stuff, make yourself invaluable to that scene and you will succeed, but you have to have the money in the bank first so that you don't go crazy and piss people off and start insisting on, you know, them supporting you. Cause the truth is they can't support you yet. They're in the same boat you are. You have to realize that and put yourself in a position where you're able to help. Yeah, you're almost creating your own internship. Yes. So I love that you suggested the Uber and uh, Lyft driver technique because what a brilliant idea. You could literally go because I, I don't know, I don't do it, but I think you could go and just drive around the neighborhood where you know all the musicians exactly. live and wait for calls. And you need them maybe all. give their give them your number once they know you're a driver, and then get them to always call you when they need a yeah. ride. Yeah, yeah. Well, so that's great, man. All right, so last one. This one's the big doozy. What's the single most important thing our listeners can do to become a recording studio rock star themselves? Practice mixing every day for hours a day. Like, seriously, get get a hold of tracks, do everything you can to practice making them sound better, and listen and compare your mixes to mixes that you know are good, and just keep working on them until they sound as good as, as those mixes. Uh, and you have to discipline yourself and spend a lot of time doing this. Uh, it, it takes a lot of time. But once you do that, then you will have trained your ear to know what a good sound is. Most people I know who are, you know, uh, graduating from, you know, school and then running off to work in the studio, they know a lot about things like gear. They can, they can name like all the revisions of, you know, an 1176 and what's good and bad about them, but they actually don't know what a good sound is. They don't know a good bass sound. They don't know a good snare drum sound. They don't know an appropriate kick drum sound, you know, especially if they've only been exposed to one kind of music, if they've, you know, if they've only listened to heavy metal and they're suddenly put on a country session, they're going to do this all wrong. You know, you have to be constantly practicing, listening, comparing, doing it every day for a long time before you finally get to the point where you just know. And it's training your ears so that when you put up a sound on your own speakers or you go to a new space and listen to a sound, you quickly can recognize whether the sound coming out of the speakers is the one that you have in your head that's appropriate for the song. Yeah. All right, Craig, thank you so much for being here on Recording Studio Rockstars. You totally rocked it. Oh, thank you. It was great. Um, can you tell our listeners how they can find you and learn more about your work? Yeah, uh, you can just find me on Facebook. Just look up Craig Alvin, A-L-V-I-N, like the chipmunk, or uh, Craig Alvin at gmail.com. And that's Craig spelled with a W and an X? <laughs> C-R-A-I-G. Okay. <laughs> Awesome, dude. Well, thank you so much, man. Uh, it's been a massive pleasure. Thank you for putting in all the extra time and answering so many incredible detailed questions. Oh, man, my pleasure. Uh, we will see you around the studio. Cheers, man. Thanks so much for listening to Recording Studio Rockstars. If you enjoyed the show and want to help make it better, please leave a rating and review on iTunes to help reach more people. You can click directly over to iTunes or go to recordingstudiorockstars.com slash review for an easy explanation. And if you want more free content, all you have to do is text RSRockstars to 33444. Again, that's RSRockstars to 33444. 
and I'll keep you in the loop with articles, videos, and podcast updates. And I'll let you know about any upcoming giveaway offers, all totally free. Thanks for listening. I'm Lid Shaw, and this is Recording Studio Rockstars. Now, go make great music. <laughs>